It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to talk all about the policy prescriptions of the Biden administration. We're not going to hear any more about Operation Warp Speed. They're going to be calling it the COVID response. We're talking right now about 2024 jockeying amongst Republicans. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? The House has been voting for this stimulus package basically for months. Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Robin Hood comes to Washington full stop on GameStop. I've got complete reaction and an exclusive interview with Congressman Trey Hollingsworth of Indiana. He's on the Financial Services Committee. Anthony Scaramucci is going to kick things off for us. He's all into cryptocurrency, and he's got the complete reaction to what has been a dizzying day as Robin Hood met with Chairwoman Maxine Waters. Did you see that? All of that, plus the situation in Texas, and we're going to talk to you specifically about whether or not this is going to spur talk of infrastructure spending. Big interview with someone who met with President Biden yesterday in the Oval Office on infrastructure, the head of the Plumbers Union. You don't want to miss that. Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital Managing Partner and Founder is on the line to set us up for tonight's big story, and that is Robin Hood and GameStop go to Washington. I just got back from the halls, the empty halls, really, of Congress, where I was covering this big story today, and I've got sounds on it. First up, from House Financial Services Committee Chairwoman Maxine Waters, who said those on Main Street believe those on Wall Street always win, and that they wanted to try to beat Wall Street investors at their own game. These events have illuminated potential conflicts of interest and the predatory ways that certain funds operate, and they have demonstrated the enormous potential power of social media in our markets. The top Republican on the committee, Congressman Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, said that a fundamental change is happening that gives small investors more power through technology. And this is the sound on that. The GameStop story represents a larger truth. A fundamental change is happening like never before. Everyday investors can communicate, access more information, and work collectively to move markets all in real time. I was looking through my reporter's notebook in preparation for tonight's program, and I underlined this, I bolded it, because it's from Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev. He defended his company's decision to restrict certain trading during the frenzy. Here's what he said. Let's roll the tape. Robinhood Securities put the restrictions in place in an effort to meet increased regulatory deposit requirements, not to help hedge funds. We don't answer to hedge funds. We serve the millions of small investors who use our platform every day to invest. 
Let's bring in Anthony Scaramucci of Skybridge Capital. We should also note that he just launched a cryptocurrency fund. Uh, it's great to catch up with you again, uh, Anthony. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for making the time for us. What's your analysis of today's hearings from Washington, D.C.? Thanks for having me, Kevin. I, I, I think it was a, a good day for Robin Hood, actually, because I thought he did a very good job of explaining what he's doing, what his business model is, and what the regulatory requirements are from these obscure places like the Depository Trust Corporation. Moreover, if Robinhood was better capitalized, let's say we had gone back six months ago and he had raised three or four billion dollars and then this GameStop phenomenon happened, I don't think you would have gotten all this buzz and all that noise. And I think the point he's making is the regulatory system is set up to protect the system itself so you don't have a system failure or a crashing of the system. Secondarily, it's set up to protect the individual, make sure that the individual investor is got all the safety seals on in terms of what they're doing. But the last piece of this thing, which was very evident today, is that we are in a free market as it relates to individual traders. If they want to trade GameStop, if they want to pick another uh, short concentrated story to try to squeeze it upward in the markets, they have the right to do that. But, of course, there's caveat emptor in that. And I don't think the Congress is in the business now of taking that freedom away from individual investors. And, and what we're learning uh, about today's testimony is that there are inherent risks in the story. Uh, I think he made a very compelling case that he's not beholden to the hedge fund managers. And frankly, Kevin, as a hedge fund manager, I was surprised that uh, I didn't feel bullets whizzing by my skull or grazing <laughs> my forehead. Uh, it didn't seem like the hedge funds were in the target uh, zone this time. So you didn't feel like, even though with all this cold weather, that you had to hop a flight to Cancun like uh, Senator Ted Cruz? Well, let me let me let me tell you something. Okay, I mean, as I said on Twitter, <laughs> Ted Cruz is the Ted Cruz of Ted Cruz's. Let's leave it at that, Kev. I mean, all right, right? let's get back he to is... policy so my bosses don't get back. Yes. I can hear our EP Barada no. saying, "Get back on track, Kev. Get back Sorry. on track." The Ted Cruz jokes, just I mean. You really can't. And we're, we're going to check in on, on Texas. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up this one point, though, about Robinhood CEO Vlad Tenev defending his company's decision to restrict certain trading right now. But essentially, uh, Tenev says that Robinhood Securities put the restrictions in place in an effort to meet increased regulatory deposit requirements not to help hedge funds. We don't answer to hedge funds. We serve the millions of small investors who use our platform every day to invest. Well, you know this, Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren raised these concerns in a letter to Citadel. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is speaking literally right now uh, in the virtual hearing, raising these concerns about Citadel. You you know what's what is the what actually happened? They're denying any involvement here, but what, what is where there's smoke is there fire? In this case, I don't I don't think there is. I mean, you know, one of the things they taught you 30 years ago at Goldman Sachs when I started there is how to process and clear a trade, and what the regulatory and financial requirements were for broker dealers to meet those trades. And so when they saw that influx of volume. And remember, on Robinhood, I can go onto the app, I can toggle two or three things and immediately get accepted for margin. You know, what the CEO didn't know, and none of his staff knew at that time, who was doing that in the frenzy and who wasn't. Uh, that's why the regulators come knocking on his door and they say, okay, well, listen, if, if, uh, if GameStop goes to 500 and all of your clients are borrowing money to bid it up to 500, if it drops to 20, 
and there's a $480 loss, you're wiping out all those accounts, and you guys are going to be on the hook for several billion dollars. So unless you curtail that trading, uh, we're going to shut it down because you're now representing a systemic risk to the overall system. Remember, Robinhood is not a bank. So Robinhood, like a Morgan Stanley or a Goldman Sachs, can't go to the Fed window and borrow money at a zero interest rate to meet those capital requirements. And so that's why they had to rush back into the markets, go to their venture capitalists, and raise several billion dollars to shore up the capital. Uh, the, the congresswomen and their aides know this. Uh, they also know that it's good politics to rail on places like Robinhood. It's an ironic name because it's supposed to be giving taking from the rich and giving to the poor, uh, and it's not doing that. All it's doing is providing a service to investors that they're actually paying for. How are they paying for it? Well, their data and their order flow is being sold to places like Citadel. And so their data and or order flow has value in the marketplace. Robinhood's telling them, you know, you can trade with us costlessly, but, oh, by the way, there's nothing for free. There's no free lunch on Wall Street we're going to take your data, take your order flow, aggregate it, and sell it to places like Citadel. And now the Congress is going to try to analyze whether that is good for individual investors, bad for individual investors, or should they be indifferent to it? You know, one of the, the, the many wonky topics, and, and you know this, but prior to coming to Bloomberg, I literally covered just the Senate Banking and the House Financial Services Committee. And, and, and a lot of these debates have been going on for years, but now there are apps that are getting all of the, the headlines and the Robin Hoods and the GameStops and whatnot. But T plus two, and for folks, if you're new to this topic, it's gotten a ton of attention because... I, I, many people don't realize this, but Wall Street has a requirement that stocks be physically deposited into a purchaser's account within two days of making an order. This is called T plus two. And so uh, you, you alluded to the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, but a lot can happen in 48 hours. And one of the points that has come up over the past couple of days from, from the industry has been, is T plus two outdated? Anthony Scaramucci, is it? Uh, you know, listen, it is and it isn't. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, that system has been in place successfully. It's been refined over 80 years. Uh, when I got in the business, it was T plus five. Uh, it is and it isn't. You know, what's interesting is the blockchain could cure that. If you if you put all of these trades up on the blockchain, uh, you could probably make the transactions, the cash and the security transfer instantaneously. I don't think the marketplace is ready for that. And I think that the it's, it's too cumbersome. You want to talk about infrastructure. This is a different type of infrastructure. Uh, Wall Street is still operating off of those old-fashioned IBM-like mainframes, Kevin. So, uh, you know, I, uh, it, the system is working. Could it be tweaked? Could it be advanced? Yes, it could be. I think what the real question is, is though, is the, does the Wall Street uh, trader have an edge over the individual? Uh, and the answer to that is clearly yes, it does. And will the individual ever be able to match Wall Street, meaning will the individual have parity? And what I would say to that is this is the closest that we've ever gotten to parity. There's near perfect information. There's access to Bloomberg ter terminals for people, large and small. And the trading is relatively clossless now. And so that makes that individual trader akin to a principal trader at a Wall Street firm circa 1995. Remember, the Wall Street trader has high-frequency trading. He has an ability through his servers uh, to see data 
more quickly than the individual. And so if you're asking me if that's ever going to change, I'm going to say no. Uh, it's the same way uh, Tom Brady can throw a spiral way better than me, possibly not you. But I, wow. you know, I'm going to give Tom Brady Wait the over uh, uh, on throwing Wait a spiral. Wait a minute. I feel like I'm back in the Brady We've briefing. we got to feel in the real world. Mooch, I mean, come on. What do you get? First of all, I'm an Eagles fan. Second of all, it's been a big day for Carson Wentz uh, and, and, and my Eagles. I got one more question for you because I got to stay on topic. But you're, you're you know, you're. I feel it. I feel the hate. Uh, a final question for you, because you know you did launch this uh, this uh, cryptocurrency. I'm sure you're familiar uh, with the investigations that have gone on with North Korea uh, stealing, using cryptocurrency to steal millions of dollars from uh, uh, financial institutions in America uh, and, and hacking and whatnot. There's so much perceived risk with cryptocurrency. As you enter into this field, what are you going to be looking? You're obviously now a leader in it. What are you going to be looking at specifically from a national security perspective to make sure that this is a safe and trusted currency? Well, I mean, listen, it's too long of a conversation for a radio show, but I'll say three quick things. Our uh, uh, Bitcoin is stored at Fidelity in cold storage, so it's impregnable to hacking because it's literally unplugged from the Internet on their servers. They have an additional layer of Lloyd's and London assurance uh, protecting those assets. Uh, the national security question is you really understand the blockchain and you understand the addresses of these wallets. Uh, the national security, NSA, they can find transfers very quickly. Is Bitcoin used for piracy and money laundering and things like that? The answer is yes, but no more than the U.S. dollar. As you and I both know, 85 percent of the $100 bills that are in circulation have traces of cocaine on them for a reason, Kevin. So. So in some ways, uh, the lack of uh, non-anonymity in those wallet addresses, if I want to move, I have $500 million of Bitcoin across the SkyBridge product platform. If I want to move that out of Fidelity into some other custodian, uh, that comes right up on the radar screen. Everybody can actually see that transfer. So I do think as people really start to understand the blockchain and crypto, uh, the fear about that stuff will dial down. Now, this is an asset class that's here to stay. It's growing exponentially akin to the laws pursuant of Medcalf's law, if you will. Uh, and it's effectively becoming a monetary network the same way Amazon is a retail network or Google is a search and advertising network. I'm trying to get my clients in there ahead of these ETFs that are coming and this big swelling of institutional demand. And, of course, we started this project back in, in November when Bitcoin was trading at 16500 uh, It will be choppy. It will be volatile. I'm cautioning individual investors. If you're interested in the strategy, buy small pieces of it for yourself. Sleep safe pieces. But I do think this is an emerging asset class that I want my clients exposed to. Anthony Scaramucci, thank you so much, sir, for the time. Great to catch up with you. I hope all is well. All right, now let's reset here. My name is Kevin Cerulli. I am the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by uh, Jeannie Zeno, Jeannie Shah Zeno, a uh, Bloomberg political uh, contributor. I want to welcome into this conversation Congressman Trey Hollingsworth. He is a Republican from Indiana, a member of the House Financial Services Committee. He participated in today's uh, hearing uh, on GameStop, uh, asking uh, questions of, of, for uh, on this very topic. Congressman, thanks for joining us. What, what's your big takeaway? I know you're, you're broken away from the hearing. It's very much ongoing. But what's your big takeaway from today's hearing? 
Look, I think there are real important issues that we should be discussing and talking about. Much of today's hearing didn't talk about those real important issues. Much of today's hearing was just a circus and trying to concoct a conspiracy theory about what may have happened without any evidence. But frankly, I think there are real topics, much of which you've already talked about, that we should be looking into as policymakers to make sure that we are and have the right policy framework for competition in the marketplace and for retail investors to more and more participate in the marketplace. So, Representative Hollingsworth, this is Jeannie Zeno in New York, and it's great to talk to you. Um, when you say that the, the hearing today didn't get where you necessarily think it should go, what do you think that people should or, or the representatives should take away or should be learning about what's going on, and what would you like to see happen next? Well, I would have preferred a hearing that was a lot more focused on some of the challenges that exist in the infrastructure of the market that created some of these issues, right? I think we should be asking ourselves whether a brokerage firm should be able to cease trading in certain securities with virtually no notice to their clients. I think we should be asking ourselves whether payment for order flow is the right structure and provides the right incentives. I think we should be asking ourselves, as I talked about in the hearing, whether we want to see more and more lit trading on exchange trading or whether we want to see the secular rise of off-exchange trading to continue unabated, whether that has deleterious impacts on price transparency and price discovery. I think those are the real issues from a policy perspective we should be focused on, not trying to concoct kind of political stories around what really happened a couple of weeks ago. You know, I was talking about this with uh, Jeannie uh, this afternoon during one of the uh, uh, breaks of the, of the hearings. And here we are in the middle of a pandemic. Millions of Americans are out of work. A lot of low-paying jobs aren't going to come back. And... The American hustle, the spirit, that entrepreneurship, they wanted to do something. A lot of these folks who are using Robinhood, they can't go back to work because their, their businesses aren't able to be open right now. And so they wanted to, to do something. And so they turned to new platforms, Reddit, Robinhood. They turned to the, the social media platforms that they are familiar with. And so I guess, it, it, can, can you talk about Congressman Hollingsworth just the moment and how this moment that we find ourselves in as a country really illustrated potentially where a lot of Americans, millions of Americans who otherwise wouldn't be able to get into these financial markets, are there's a want to participate. This is a great question, and I love that you framed it that exact way. Because frankly, there's a lot that has gone right throughout the course of this four markets. Number one, retail investors able to participate at levels and at execution that they would never be able to 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. The price of entry has declined immensely, and we're seeing more and more investors stepping into the market for the first time. Secondarily, as has been talked about already, execution and bid ask spreads are better than they have ever been, both for retail investors and for larger institutional investors. And then third, access to information, as you well articulated, access to information is more even across a wider variety of investors than ever before. It's not perfectly even, but it is more even than it has ever been before. Many of these things are are going right for the retail investor, going right for American capital markets. There is an instance 
throughout the course of this that we've seen where a lot of things went wrong that may have led to some harm to retail investors. We should look into that, do proper discovery, but it should not take away from the greater narrative of the American spirit in wanting to better their financial position and having access to the tools and information to do so like never before. So they talk about, I mean, so I hear you on that, and, and but then you got the hedge funds. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of speculation that, that there's been these pump and dump schemes and, and which you've got, you know, the headline risk and the, the uh, on social media and traders spreading false information on social media platforms to engineer a rally before selling at the highs. And I, I don't know. I mean, dare I say it might be the social media version of insider trading. How do you as a as a, a member of the Financial Services Committee, how do you have a smart a fair policy conversation about how to craft the regulatory rules of the road for this unchartered territory? Great question. So number one, we need agencies to make sure that they are ferreting out any wrongdoing and anything that is currently illegal and make sure we're prosecuting that to the fullest extent of the law. To the extent of their ability to do so, I want every agency to do the investigations necessary to ensure that no current illegal activity is ongoing. Secondarily, we do need to look at what the regulatory framework around this should be, and that's what I hope that we would do more of today. But the answer can't be, oh, we want to limit people's access to information or we want to limit people's access to the market. All that is going to do is drive more and more inequality into the market between those that have access to the information, those that have access to the products, and those that don't. And the last thing I want to see is for American families, Americans all the way across this country, to feel like there are two different markets, one for them. And then one for those that are already wealthy or already ultra sophisticated in the market. That's not what we want to see. So that can't be the answer to this. How we pull all this together involves our regulatory environment, involves legislative action, but it also involves a greater cultural conversation to make sure that those that have tremendous power at their fingertips at the end of these apps also understand that there are risks, there are responsibilities associated with that power. So, Representative Hollingsworth, I really appreciate your focus on the structure and the infrastructure and what needs to be examined and potentially addressed in a regulatory framework in that regard. So one thing that seems very clear is that for all the positive aspects for retail investors today, one real challenge is that, for example, if Robinhood had not been able to raise that capital, potentially many of your constituents and, and Americans around the country who had invested could have lost their shares. So it's a real vulnerability that's been exposed here in that regard. And what do you think can be done to sort of plug that hole, if you will, in the structure? Jeannie, this is a great question. This is exactly what we've been talking about for the last year on our side of the aisle in financial services. Look, we're seeing the integration of technology and financial services in a way that we never have before. And let's just think about what the culture is, perhaps in Silicon Valley that we've seen, right? It's a lot of, let's throw it up against the wall and see if it works, right? Let's fail fast. Let's get VO1 out there, then get VO2, then get VO3. Yeah, some would, call that, some would call that hustle and grit. Go ahead. Right. I'm not bemoaning that. I'm yeah. just gonna, the reality of that is that that may work in a wide variety of fields, but as we've seen in certain fields, whether that's in healthcare or in financial services, we do have a regulatory framework for a reason to protect people's livelihoods, to protect their savings, to protect their health, and making sure that we have a level playing field, something that holds 
tech-ish fintech firms accountable in the same way that we hold big financial services accountable is really important because we want innovation to create better opportunities, but we don't want it to create huge opportunities for failures that we could have had, like you said, with Robinhood. And I'm actually working on legislation right now that helps to even that playing field a little bit and make sure that if you are going to go and tell clients that you will provide a service to them and they invest their hard-earned money in through your app, then you should owe them the right to disclose either where you are financially, should you be headed into trouble, or alternatively to provide them notice before you claim that you need to cease trade in certain securities. This is really important. Well, make sure you come back on and, and when that uh, legislation, when you propose that legislation. I mean, I was just thinking about this the other day when I was getting my coffee yesterday uh, in, in between hits for uh, Bloomberg TV. I was, you know, everything is fintech. You know, I was loading up my uh, my app where I get my coffee, Philadelphia-based chain, and I uh, and and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, now every every app, even a coffee app, is now protecting you know my account information or for 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 whatever information gyms right. if anyone does you know the gym classes and whatnot all of the, everything is touching fintech and i think you know it's it's really evolved incredibly quickly i do want to uh, talk to you uh, about a red headline that just crossed my bloomberg terminal the biden administration would be willing to meet with iran to discuss a diplomatic way forward on efforts to return to the nuclear deal that president trump quit in 2018 this according to state department spokesman ned price again red headline the u.s says it would meet with Iran. Is that the right move, Congressman Hollingsworth? Well, it depends on what they're meeting and what the intention is. If the intention is a deal at any cost, you and I and every business person listening to this understands that that is no real negotiating power. Iran has shown aggression, not only before the bad deal that was inked, but then after the bad deal was terminated in the region, shown a threat to the United States, shown a threat to our partners in the region. If you're going in to negotiate a better deal and get better terms for peace in that region and peace around the world, then meet with them. But if you're going in to beg to be to get a bad deal back, then we're headed for a worse situation and more tensions, more escalation, as Iran learns that all it needs to do to get its way is to continue to be aggressive and escalate force. Stimulus talks. We got to pivot to the to the $1.9 trillion stimulus. Jeannie and I were talking about this before the show. A massive stimulus deal. When is that going to be inked? Do you have concerns about the size of the price tag? I have significant concerns about the price tag. What we've seen in the last 30 to 45 days is significant acceleration in the economy. All of the real-time indicators are showing that there is strength in the economy that is beginning to build, and especially as we're seeing case counts fall dramatically, vaccinations come up dramatically. I think there is a robust economic future ahead of us. But I think spending $1.9 trillion when $900 billion remains unspent from previous stimulus is adding fuel to the fire that is right now unnecessary. Should it become necessary, I want to help every American family. I want to help every American business as we can to get through this. But I want to make sure we're being good stewards of taxpayer dollars and not overspending right now. We've already spent nearly $4 trillion on this. That's an astounding sum of money, larger than every economy around the world except for China and the United States. I want to make sure that when we're spending these dollars, we're thinking about the future generations of Americans that have to pay them back. I want to help. I want to make sure we get through this, but I want to be good steward of taxpayer dollars as well. I think a targeted, thoughtful package that focuses on the health crisis that we are still in 
so that we return confidence to Americans so they travel again, so they get back in classrooms, so they go back to work, all of these That's what we should be focused on right now, not trying to just write checks. So, Representative Hollingsworth, what then would you take out, if you will, of the bill, um, maybe setting aside the $15 minimum wage? What other things would you like to see stripped out of this bill to get it down to a price or a cost that you think is reasonable and, of course, will do the job that we all need to see, we all know needs to be done? Yeah, this is a really thoughtful question. Let me take the opposite question, which is, what do I think we should do immediately? And I think when I talk to American families all the way across the country, what they're waiting for is confidence to come back. When I talk to hospitality owners, when I talk to restaurant owners, they want people to come back in droves, and we need confidence to do so. So what I would do is take the part of this bill, which is around 150 to $175 billion, that is genuinely focused on how do we speed up vaccinations, right? How do we get more shots in arms more quickly? How do we make Make sure we've got enough antivirals to lessen symptoms for those that haven't yet gotten the shot. I would really focus on that because what I continue to hear from people is that they've built overall in aggregate. Everybody's experience is different. But American households have built a tremendous amount of savings over the last year, $2 trillion, according to the Federal Reserve. People want to go out and have those shared experiences again spend money at all of our local and small businesses, but they don't have the confidence yet to do so. And so I would really focus on unlocking the health crisis piece of this first. Then let's assess where we stand after we've gotten through that. I've seen some really impressive reports. The Wall Street Journal had a great editorial today talking about how close we are to herd immunity. I want to see us speed up our process to get that. That way we get back to a robust recovery this summer. Congressman Trey Hollingsworth is with us. He is a Republican who represents Indiana's ninth congressional district we're talking now about the economic stimulus uh and and where things stand i'm struck by this congressman this minimum wage debate that's happening on the left right now uh and it, it really was spurred by comments from president biden at that cnn town hall earlier this week in which he said i got the quote here hold on let me let me make sure I don't want to I don't want to mince any words. He says, quote, I do support a fifteen dollar minimum wage, but that's a debatable issue. And he said that uh, he floated the possibility of raising the minimum wage, as the Wall Street Journal notes, to twelve or thirteen dollars an hour by twenty twenty five. That's a lot different than uh, than a fifteen dollar uh, minimum wage. Uh, I'm curious or would that be something currently it's at it's at seven dollars and 25 cents would that type of gradual increase be something that you would be able to support congressman hollingsworth well i come back to basic economics how do i drive a sustainable increase for wages for americans that's what every american family wants to see that's what i want to see as a policymaker. and the best way i know to do that is to rev up the economy so that we improve demand for labor over time. And that is really, really important. The second way that we can do this is to increase the marginal productivity of labor, right? Making sure that we're training kids for the future jobs that are going to be out there. Those are the two ways to sustainably do that over time. And I'm hopeful that we can make the minimum wage debate irrelevant by virtue of the wage increases American families are seeing because we build a strong, robust economy. But right now, but right now, when it's 725, I mean, it's Senator Mitt Romney, a Republican from Utah, and even Tom Cotton of Arkansas, another Republican, they said that they're going to introduce legislation that would also gradually uh, raise the minimum wage. I mean, I, 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 you know, in this, with millions of Americans, you mentioned the issue of retraining, but 
it, uh, to your point, I mean, there's zero dollars in this 1.9 trillion stimulus bill that would go to retraining. Right. I mean, this is this is the real shame of this bill, right? What I want to see happen is us help Americans sustainably get to a better financial position, not just write them a check so they get it tomorrow and have that sugar rush bump. But instead, how do we find them the right career path forward that will provide them wage gains over the long term? How do we provide them access to the financial services that help them buy homes, buy cars, send their kids to college? All of the things that are cornerstones of our American dream. We do that by genuine and thoughtful legislative policy that reflects economic realities, not by just writing checks to people, not by short-term solutions like foreclosure bars or eviction bars. We need to find the right long-term policy framework that empowers Americans to move forward. And I continue to be an advocate for that. We saw that during the Trump administration where a lower regulatory burden changes to the tax code, improved wage gains for Americans. I want to make sure that the Biden administration picks up that mantle and recognizes that now is not the time for significant regulatory burden. Now is not the time to go backwards on the tax code. Now is not the time to strap small businesses across Indiana with a really, really high minimum wage. Now is the time to get the economy roaring again so that Americans get back to work again. Well, here's the here's the sound on uh, Biden from earlier this week at that CNN town hall, Jeannie, that uh, we were able to pull. Our EP, Christine Barada, pulled it. Uh, take a listen. No one should work 40 hours a week and live in poverty. No one should work 40 hours a week and live in poverty. But it's totally legitimate for small business owners to be concerned about how that changes. How it changes their bottom line, Jeannie Zeno. I mean, especially right now when a lot of these small businesses are being told by their state officials they can't, they they're not allowed to open. It's it's fascinating to me in terms of President Biden making that statement the other day as to how Democrats rather are going to be responding to that and have been responding to that. I have a friend who used to tell me everything before a butt is a lie. And what you hear there and I say that facetiously, but what you hear there is something that's got to make Democrats very, very concerned about the future of the $15 minimum wage. But Representative Hollingsworth, I wanted to ask you in terms of and I know this is a little bit of a of a, of a turn, but in terms of the immigration bill that we're just seeing come mm. out and yeah. I know it's you've been in hearings all day I'm sure you have been very busy but this idea as sort of a top line of an eight-year pathway to citizenship do you have any thoughts on what the proposal is or might be and where you might find yourself on this issue I don't yet. Honestly, as you well said, I've been really focused on the game stuff here throughout the course of today. This was really important to me. And despite some headline chasing by members, I I think there are real policy issues that need to be addressed here. And as a member of financial services, I want to make sure every American feels like they've got the opportunity to expand their financial future. So I don't know about that yet. Certainly, I will continue to dig into it as we head back to Washington for another session week next week. I know this is going to be a topic of hot debate in figuring out where do we go from here. Well, so, I mean, the other big issue, and, and I hear you on this, but Jim Webb, former uh, a former uh, a senator, Democratic senator from, from Virginia, he's got an op-ed in the journal today headlined, An American Belt and Road Initiative. Everyone's talking about infrastructure. Uh, they were uh, President Biden was talking about infrastructure earlier this week. We're going to have one of the folks who met with him, uh, Mark McManus at the Plumbers Union, join us at the at the coming up next. But you know, I, I I'm Texas millions of folks without power crisis down in Texas. 
uh, does it exacerbate the need for there to be infrastructure, uh, or are you still, or, 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 and if so, how would you fund it? Because China's building away; they're building all over the world. But does America need to compete and to re-harness its infrastructure power, Congressman Hollingsworth? No, absolutely. And I think, I think, frankly, this is a bipartisan issue. I think everyone across the aisle, I think Americans all the way across the country, agree that America should be investing more in infrastructure. The problem and the debate comes in, in is how people define infrastructure, right? Are we going to define infrastructure as just windmills and electric charging stations? Or are we going to define infrastructure as pipelines to carry natural gas? Are we going to define infrastructure as roads? or better airways by virtue of the next gen at the FAA. These are the debates that we are having. No one thinks, gosh, we should be investing more in infrastructure. I think where everyone begins the debate is what does infrastructure really mean? And frankly, I hope that the calamity going on in Texas that I continue to hear about over and over again highlights the need for us to invest in reliable infrastructure that has a proven technology today not invest in pie-in-the-sky notions of what infrastructure might be in 20 or 30 years. Let's let technology unfold. I'm a big believer in that, but let's not get too far ahead of the technology and build something, and then they don't come. So do you actually think infrastructure could pass uh, this year? I think infrastructure is an area where we could get real legislative action done, but I think the president is going to have to be a leader on this and actually follow through on his promise of unity instead of a partisan appeal. That's what we haven't seen in Congress in the last 45 days. I want us to see that unity and focus on how we get things done. The House majority is very, very thin and only getting thinner as those reps leave to go to the administration. I think there should be a recognition that bipartisanship is the way to get something done. All right, Congressman Trey Hollingsworth, always great to have you on. He is a Republican from Indiana's 9th Congressional District. We hit all the topics. I really appreciate your time. You've been very generous with it. Come back and talk to us soon, especially uh, as this uh, GameStop issue uh, continues onward. And he is also the rank, the vice-ranking member of the House Financial Services C Committee Subcommittee on Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets, a very influential subcommittee, uh, no doubt. All right, coming up next, we pivot back to uh, infrastructure. We're going to stay with this conversation. Jeannie Shanzano is with me. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. Did you see this? NASA nails an historic Mars landing in the hunt for ancient life. Reading, re reading 
from Justin Bachman's report on the Bluebird Terminal. NASA successfully landed its largest and most sophisticated science rover on Mars. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shazeno. Jeannie, any idea what they named the spacecraft that touched down on the Red Rock? It's not Perseverance. It is Perseverance. It is. <laughs> you persevered. You I got persevered. It right. it's, it's the only time I ever get those questions right. I was at NASA not long ago with my sons, and it's, oh, such that's an awesome. it's such an amazing place and people, and there's so much to learn. And I know that they were very nervous about this today, so what a, what a success. You know, look, and for all the talk of oh, artificial, tele, uh, artificial intelligence and automation taking over, well, folks— Artificial intelligence and robots just landed on Mars. So <laughs> we've uh, we've come a long, long way. But uh, the space race, I mean, it really is absolutely fascinating. You know, speaking of, of virtual and going virtual, I, I was up there on Capitol Hill uh, covering that virtual hearing. Jeannie, I told you this in the show prep. It is a ghost town. I mean, there's no one there. The lights in the hallways are off. When I would walk down, the lights would go back on because uh, for the motion detectors. But... It's absolutely unreal. I mean, it's it's uh, no one's no one's up there. I can't. If you've ever been to the halls of of Congress, usually it's bustling and there's you know dozens of people. I I texted one of my sources. I said, "Where are people getting coffee on the House side these days?" Because, <laughs> and I mean, th nothing was open. I mean, they're at, I, so it's it's really it's it's very different than the I can't stress this enough than the Washington that that you and I are used to. So, Kevin, I just have to ask you: when you are covering this, then where are you? Are you are you in the well, Capitol by yourself? <laughs> well, pretty much. I mean, it's it's Harvey, our our, our indefatigable uh, photographers, with us, you know, and and there was maybe two other correspondents in what's wow. known as the Canon Rotunda. Typically, there would be if, on a day like today. There, there, the the uh, the Senate and, and House uh, congressional TV gallery that that or that helps facilitate everything. They would be doing, you know, the ropes outside of the hearing, and it would be shoulder to shoulder. You'd be going live, uh, you know, with with you know f correspondents from competing networks, and it, it's really different. But you know, hey, we got to keep hustling through it because we. I mean, it was a, a really an historic historic. Uh, hearing and they're going to continue next week with big pharma and then the week after that solar wind in the senate um i checked in with the rubio source today did you see this ivanka is not going to run for florida senate uh against rubio wow and and what about lara trump is she running uh, well, maybe in north carolina, north carolina but the right? rubio staffer said we tried to tell you kev no one believed us in the media but we knew she wasn't going to run anyway the other big conversation of course, is infrastructure spending. So let's uh, let's get back on track with uh, some policy uh, discourse here with our next guest. Really grateful that he made time for us today. I know he's very, very busy. It's Mark McManus, General President of the United Association of Journeymen and Apprentices of the Plumbing and Pipe Fitting Industry of the U.S. and Canada, the Plumbers Unions. He met with President Biden earlier this week uh, in the Oval Office. What'd you talk about, Mark? Well, we talked about... Uh we talked about infrastructure. We had a two-hour meeting. He, he was very generous and a vice president as well with their time uh, yesterday. So it was fresh off the press yesterday afternoon, about 4 o'clock. And uh, all the above, he wants to go big on infrastructure, and it's uh, long overdue in this country, I think. Right, Kevin? So do you think you actually have a chance? Do you think you have a chance? Because I, I just talked to a Republican, Congressman Trey Hollingsworth of Indiana, in the, in the segment before you. 
And look, I mean, a lot of Republicans, you know this, Mark, they're very wary about government spending. How are you going to convince them? Well, I think you got to convince uh, the people. It's it's four years ago we were invited into the Oval Office when the Republicans held all three branches, and uh, the president at that time, President Trump, said we're going to have the largest infrastructure package. And I I pushed back a little bit. I said Mitch McConnell's never been for it, Paul Ryan at the time as well. And quite honestly, he said I don't want to look back, but he says I got him right here underneath my finger. We'll get it done. And we didn't get anything done. He said two trillion. We got zero for four years. Uh, I think Biden's uh, President Biden's experience and uh, not to make the same mistakes uh, with the three branches and his experience on how to navigate, um, uh, you know, the halls of Congress uh, with his experience go a long way there. And and I think you have to put it in real people's terms of uh, when we get out of covid of people sitting in traffic on bridges and roads and, and, and the railways and the, the infrastructure, the, the airports pre-COVID were, were mobbed. Uh, so I think it's a way of life. Uh, so I think that's, that's where it's got to come from. Uh, there are going to be fights on it, on how big and uh, how bold to go with it for sure, though, you know. Mr. McManus, it's Jeannie Shanzano in New York. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. And you you just were mentioning that you seem optimistic or you feel somewhat optimistic that this can get done after you mentioned uh, several years of talking about infrastructure weeks and bills and things like that. Um, We know that the Biden administration has wanted to tie this build back better to jobs, 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 and hence having all of you there the other day. What do you think the message is that the administration and, and Congress can put out to the American people to let them know that the, as big as this bill may be, it is going to result in a payback in terms of jobs and give people on the ground the income they need coming out of COVID. Yeah, it's a great point. And it's great talking to you as well. And I appreciate you having me on. It's a great point. Uh, you know, infrastructure uh, was always bipartisan for years and years and years until every single thing has gotten partisan lately. Uh, Democrats and Republicans use the rails and use the and use the airports and the bridges and the roads. Um, but it, it, it's unique, uh, and I think it's the selling point that it, it, it restores money back into the economy. For every dollar that you spend in infrastructure, money comes back not only with good, sustainable, middle-class jobs performing that work, but then uh, all, all the other um, down the line, um, you know, ways of life to make commutes quicker uh, and, and different things. So, so it pays for itself coming back. You know, it's the initial guts to to to, to go out in front of it. And I, I do think I'm optimistic. I'm always optimistic, even in these times. I do think if there is bipartisanship somewhere, it has to be on infrastructure. I think that's the least of the partisan thing. Uh, there'll be a partisan fight on how big, for sure. But I think we can get some of that there. I mean, China has the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, and, and, and guests have come on this program. Uh, Mark McManus, head of the uh, uh, plumbing and pipe fitting industry of the United States and Canada, is with us. He met with President Biden earlier this week. I mean, are we at a, at a global competitive disadvantage because we don't, we're not all speaking from the same long-term infrastructure playbook? Absolutely. I think we are. Absolutely. And and, you know, you hear politicians from both sides of the aisle and and presidential candidates speak when they travel the world of of whether it's high speed rail in Asia or different things in Europe. Um, So the the will is there and it should be more than a a talking point. But the the days when you cannot uh, export or move your products around this country, uh, 
cripples mm. the country. We do not we do not become leaders. You know, one specific uh, uh, thing was the gateway tunnels between New York and New Jersey, where you're you're up that way. Oh, yeah. Uh, really got damaged got damaged pretty well in in Hurricane Sandy, and quite honestly, uh, President Trump he was transparent whether you liked them or not. Said. We're not going to do that because that's in Chuck Schumer's district, and we're not going to give them a win on that. Well, a quarter of America's population from Boston to D.C. on that corridor, uh, and, and that goes tumbling down, that is an economic disaster and impact. You know, yeah. what's the co- – I, I think what we have to ask, uh, Kevin, I think what we have to ask, what's the price of not doing this? Well, let's go That's from New York question. to Texas because you mentioned traffic. Well, a lot millions of Americans right now are stuck at home, uh, and they don't have power, and, and their pipes are bursting, and, and they've frozen over. I mean, uh, what I, mean, I got 30 seconds left with you, Mark McManus, but what pressure does the situation down in Texas put on the infrastructure debate? I think I think it highlights it. It highlights our disconnect. Texas is solo on the grid, which is a separate problem. They can't even import energy from any other states. They're the only one that way. But it uh, it highlights our grids that need to be upgraded as well. This isn't just bro- uh, roads and bridges. And the president of the United States, uh, Biden, uh, absolutely was the. Uh, knee deep on all of these issues of upgrading our energy and our mm-hmm. power grids as well. So. What surprised you about the Oval Office? His openness and his I met the room, Mark. His, I met the room. The room. I always hear about the White the, House M&Ms. Small. small a, a, a little bit smaller uh, than I thought. All right. Um, all right. Uh, tiny, bit, tiny bit smaller than I thought. It's humbling for a kid from New Jersey originally that uh, made his way through an apprenticeship program to sit in the Oval Office, and it wasn't nice. about me. It was about my membership. Nice. Uh, it, it, All right, come back on. Like, i got to let you go. i got to let you go because I, I, you've been so great with your time. Thank you, Mark McManus. B- February is Black History Month. Here with today's installment is Bloomberg's Renita Young. On this day in black history in 1688, Germantown, Pennsylvania, Quakers hold the first formal protest against slavery. A petition was drafted on behalf of the Germantown meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. In the document, the four men use the Bible's golden rule to argue against such inhumane treatment of their fellow man, regardless of the color of their skin. Now, the golden rule, of course, is the principle of treating others as you would want to be treated. The petition argued that every human, regardless of their belief, color, or ethnicity, has rights that should not be violated. Seeing the injustices of the slave trade, these men courageously took a stand against slavery based on their religious and moral beliefs. That's Today in Black History. I'm Renita Young, Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Kevin Cirilli. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 